Welcome to Changing Your Dreams, Parenting a Child with Special Needs, a podcast where we shine a light on the unique grief of special needs parents that few people recognize and no one really talks about. I'm your host, Laura Kitts. How do we live a beautiful life with chronic stress and grief? How do we nurture ourselves while we nurture our children? How do we make ourselves a priority when they need so much? My guests and I will discuss this chronic, ever-renewing grief, transforming your dreams, and how to take care of yourself along the way when parenting a differently abled child. This episode is sponsored by Flight Club. Join a circle of friends who understand you and your life as a special needs parent. Combine that with monthly guest experts, live self-care accountability sessions with me, and easy, actionable assignments to help you emerge from the hard work, transformed, just as the butterfly from her chrysalis, and you've got Flight Club. Welcome to the second episode in my sibling series of Changing Your Dreams, Parenting a Child with Special Needs. I will be talking to each of my guests in the sibling series about a TED Talk that I watched recently from a woman who grew up as a sibling to a child with special needs. I encourage you all to go to the show notes to find the link and watch it. It discusses the term glass child, which is given to siblings because they often feel see-through with their siblings' needs always coming first. It's an extremely moving presentation. Today's guest is Shannon Patch. She's a government affairs professional from Buffalo, New York. She has spent over a decade working in New York politics, including for U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Now, in addition to her work for for a global hospitality company, she is councilwoman in her hometown. Her sister, Tina, is the inspiration for her work in government, especially advocating for people with special needs. Tina is 33 years old and lives in a group home, but Shannon assists with many needs that the home does not necessarily provide. So hi there, Shannon. I'm happy to speak with you today. Um, We talked briefly, so I know a little bit of your story, but I'm excited to have you join our sibling series this month. And so will you tell us about your family growing up and your sibling who has special needs? Yes, and thank you so much for doing this. I think this is such an important issue that doesn't always come to light in the disability community. So I'm so um, impressed and and happy that you're doing this. So thank you. And thank you for your whole podcast. I I was able to listen to a few of the episodes and I found them really helpful and just really I don't know, like acknowledging some of the stuff that we go through as families. So I think you're doing Thank a you. really great thing here. Um, so I, my sister Tina is uh, developmentally disabled. She, we adopted her from Bulgaria. She grew up in an orphanage until she was about six when my parents adopted her and brought her to the United States. I was eight years old when she came over. Um, we weren't, we didn't know about her disabilities at first because there was such a language barrier and such a you know, a delay in in normal development from being in an orphanage. She didn't attend school. She didn't have a lot of interaction with adults and that sort of thing. And so um, we had hoped that within the first couple of years, she would catch up, but it just, it just didn't happen. And and I would say within the first two years of her being here, it was, became pretty clear that her disabilities were different than just a language barrier and different than just like normal delay 
um, that she, she truly does have some disabilities. So um, she now lives in a group home, which is awesome because um, she does have a little bit of independence and it's just healthier for our whole family. I mean, as you know, uh, you know, my, and my parents are, are not young anymore. And so, um, how manage. old are you, how old are you and Tina now? So I'm 35, Tina's 33. My parents are in their early sixties. Okay. Um, and so they're still, you know, pretty able and all of that, of course, but it's, it's hard. Tina's a, um, Tina's a tough Bulgarian Eastern European lady. And so <laughs> physically speaking, um, any assistance that she would need, my parents would not be able to provide at this point and, and you know, it's only gonna get worse. So um, so she is in the safest and best place for her. She has a dual diagnosis. She's developmentally disabled and schizophrenic. And the schizophrenia can sometimes um, present in lashing out and some more violent tendencies. It's not common. It doesn't happen a ton to her, but it does happen from time to time. So it really is the safest and best place for her. For sure. Um, and so that's a difficult diagnosis to manage. Um, and so even more difficult, I can only imagine with someone who's already got developmental delays on top of that as a, as a completely separate issue. And so is she verbal? Yes. yes. Okay. She is, I, I liken her to, you know, she reads on like a second grade level and does math on a first or second grade level, but she's kind of like talking to a 13 year old, like socially, she's kind of like that, like okay. very happy, um, interested in pop music and popular culture and that kind of thing. So she's verbal. She's very, um, you know, she's a great person. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, you ask her to count money, forget it. Tell time. Yeah difficult you know you can tell her you have to be you have to be ready by seven o'clock and by seven o'clock that kid is ready because she knows it says seven o'clock on the on the clock mm -hmm. but she can't tell you that two hours from now is nine o'clock right. you know what I mean right yeah it's 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 always hard when skills are scattered which is so common in in our you know population and our kids and, and siblings but other people outside of our world, I don't think really understand that they're just always scattered. And so people want to know like, well, yeah, like that, that functioning level, oh, functioning at, you know, first grade or six yeah. or, you know, whatever, you just can't do that, you know, they're yeah. just, and she can memorize, she can memorize the Buffalo Bills players number. <laughs> Fantastic. So I don't know where that fits into the skill set, but she's got that down. <laughs> Hey man, that that can prove to be very valuable. I am yep. sure, especially in <laughs> Buffalo, in some way. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, what was it like? You know, you were eight when when your family adopted Tina, and so I'm sure you remember that. You were probably old enough to remember that. And so, you know, what was that like leading up to adoption? You know, what was the motivation for your family? Were you a part of it? How did that work? Um, being older and going to adopt also an older child, not a baby. Yeah. So we started the process when I was in kindergarten, first grade, and Tina finally came to the United States in when I was in second grade. And so it was a long process. And in the nineties, there was a lot of conversation around orphanages in Eastern Europe and the, the poor conditions there. And so my parents started the process. My mom went over and found Tina um, and knew that like, this was her baby. This was her child. This was the child she wanted. It was a really deep experience for her, but she was not able to take her out at that time. There was still a lot of legal stuff that needed to happen around that. And in the, in the time between when 
she and Tina met. And when Tina came home, there was a documentary that was aired on 2020 about the poor conditions of these orphanages. And so they shut down all the all kids coming out of the United States. Oh, wow. And so there was a lot of really painful and chaotic times around them. I'll never forget the Christmas that we celebrated without Tina. They sent us a card with her hand outlined. I like tear up just thinking about yeah. it. Her hand outlined on it. And that was all we had. That was oh. all my mother had. And now that I'm a mom, I think about that. And I'm like, oh my God, how painful that must have been mm. to have seen this child, held this child, know in your mind and in your heart that this is your child. And she's not there for Christmas and all you have is a handprint. So, um, so it's safe to say Tina was very, very wanted and very, very loved before she even came over here and loved, of course, despite and beyond her disabilities or abilities, you know, we, we love her and we cherish her because we had that experience of not having her. Um, but there was a lot of complex legal stuff that I, of course, didn't understand. We were on the news, you know, people were always talking about us. We had a big fundraiser, the Valentina bash, her full name is Valentina. Valentina Bash um, in like 1991 um, to raise money for my parents' expenses to go over and get her out of Bulgaria. And so there, there was a lot of stuff around that um, leading up to it. And okay. so it was exciting and cool and chaotic and sad. And, you know, I was so excited to get a sister, but when was she coming? Like it was a very, very chaotic time, I guess. I can imagine that. Yeah. Being very uh, confusing, overwhelming, chaotic. Yeah. All of those things, I'm sure. So then I can just imagine um, any child living in the conditions that she was in for that length of time in her very formative years, no matter her delay or not. Um, I can imagine that that had to have some trauma instilled in her. And what was that like when she got here for her with, with that history? And, and I'm sure you thought you were confused with with all the media. I, I can't imagine the confusion, you know, that she was feeling um, as she didn't understand probably where she was and what was happening. Do yeah. you remember like some of those early moments and what that I might do. have been like the, for her? Yeah, the night she came home. So my parents went over, my mom went over the first time by herself. The second time they went together and I stayed with my grandmother and they were in Bulgaria for about two weeks dealing with all the legal bits of it. And when they were coming home, of course their flight was delayed. You know, I just think of this poor eight-year-old Shannon. She was just so excited to get a sister. And of course the flight was delayed. And there's a picture of me sitting in the Buffalo Niagara airport on the floor, just waiting for my sister. And it's like midnight. I'm eight years old. It's midnight. I'm sitting on the floor in an airport. Um, Because at that time you could go right to the- Right. At that time Um, you could sit on the floor in an airport. Exactly. Um, but I remember, I mean, obviously this kid's exhausted. She's coming in. She doesn't speak the language. And here at this time, I was bigger than her. She was quite malnourished. She was itty bitty. I mean, you could see every rib. She was this itty bitty little thing. And we got home and she had on a pair of slip-on canvas sneakers and I pulled them off for her and she burst into tears because here's this bigger kid stealing her language. Shoes stealing her shoes. Yeah. And my parents and I were like, oh my gosh, you're okay. You're okay. And so that night she slept with her shoes on her nightstand where she could see them. And she slept like that for a couple of, couple of years where she could see her shoes and know that no, I, and no other kid was going to come take them. And, And so I look back at that now and I think what an interesting cultural thing to not know. I was trying to be a good big sister for my very first time being a big sister and trying to help her with something, but culturally for her, that was so confusing and so upsetting. And so there was a lot of figuring that stuff out, but, um, 
but I also, we were just two kids, two little girls and boy, you'll find a way to play. My parents always said like the language barrier existed, but like I, I picked up on Bulgarian more than any of the adults did, which makes sense. Kids always pick up on language right. like that. And That's she and amazing. I were always able to communicate because we were kids. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Girls that wanted to play. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's so beautiful. What a great story for you. Like what a wonderful experience and obviously life-changing for the best for Tina. Um, and so you talked about her being malnourished and, and you could see all of her ribs. Um, how long did it take for her to kind of acclimate as far as just getting healthier and, and kind of understanding that you weren't going to steal her shoes and right. all of those things? Like I can imagine it took a long time. I mean, but I don't, I don't have any idea really. What was, yeah, I would say within about two years, okay, that's I what, was that was wearing, my guess. I yeah, was I was wearing her hand-me-downs within about two years. Oh, wow. Um, you know, you get good food, milk, protein, meat, and that kid shot up. I mean, she just, and, and we also didn't have a really clear sense of how old Tina was. They told us the birth date, but it wasn't real. The record keeping wasn't fantastic. So, okay. so we sort of guessed at her age based on her size, based on what the orphanage told my mother. And of course I wasn't there and I was eight years old. So I made right. you know, these stories are what I have in my head. This is my family story as I can tell it. Sure. Um, so we sort of, made it up. We gave her a birthday. We gave her, you know, and, and so, and so she may even be, you know, we say 33 now and that is her legal birthday and her legal age, but there's probably not really any way to know. And so she may be two or three years older than me, who knows? But, um, but yeah, I would say about two years, she, she shot up. I was wearing her hand-me-downs. It was, you know, she was two years younger than me, but a foot taller. Um, and as far as like not having to sleep with her shoes, that lasted for a while, but she started to learn that like, we were going to share toys and that was okay. Like toys were something she could share with us. Her bunny that my mom brought her the first time that never left her side for until she was a teenager, you know? So it was just certain things that she would like latch on to and other things she just sort of learned. And, and again, we, we just became normal sisters. I think that happens to a lot of siblings you know, as we get older, we recognize the differences and the changes in, in our lives and the things that are different from our peers. But in the moment, you don't know, you have no idea. You just think this is, this is fun, you know, or we're doing all this stuff normal, normal girls do. Right, you just were so thrilled to have a sister. I was, yeah. I love I that am. so much. <laughs> I, I am of the belief, and I've said this for many, many years, I am of the belief that every girl needs a sister. I just think that it's, a magical and amazing relationship. And so I'm thrilled for both of you to have each other even now. So I don't know if um, <clears throat> what you think about this. And so I'm curious to ask you, I've been talking in this sibling series to all the people that I've been interviewing as siblings about this notion of the glass child. And um, I believe I shared with you so that you could look at it ahead of time. And so just to remind our audience, if they haven't heard this yet, the term glass child is one that I've just fairly recently discovered. And it's given to siblings of kids with special needs um, because they identify as glass in the element of feeling see-through or unseen, not that they're fragile or breakable like glass. But um, and so I just wonder, you have such a different experience with Tina being adopted 
And um, that whole, that element is just so, so unique, it, you know, of a story and, and a different view and a, and a different lens. And so I'm curious what you think about that term. Yeah, so thank you very much for sharing that with me because that was not something I had heard before and I did listen to it. Um, and at first, I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to identify with that. I looked at that, like you said, breakable, see-through, you know, all of that. I'm like, oh, that's not me. <laughs> right. That's not me at all. But as I listened to it and took some notes and really reflected, there are definitely some elements there that, that I can appreciate and I can acknowledge. Um, you know, first of all, I am definitely a caretaker. You know, I, I think a little bit parentified to some extent. My parents joked for a long time and, and still do that I'm like the third parent. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that they meant to do that in any way that was unhealthy. I think it just sort of happened. Yep. And, you know, so, so I definitely identify with that. Um, for me, I wanted to sort of turn the glass child thought on its head a little bit, because I, I do think that that happens and happens to me to some extent, but I think it was almost like I was the lens through which my sister was seen. Um, and so whatever I was doing, they wanted Tina to do whatever her version of that was. You know, okay. when I bought a car when I was 17, they helped her get a motorized scooter. I moved out of the house. I think and went that to college. is so awesome. By the I way. know, I know. I They're so say. big. They were really smart. They were good yeah, parents. So you got a car and she got a motorized scooter. <laughs> right. You Love know, it. I, after high school, moved out and went to college. Tina, pretty close to move, after high school, moved out and went to the group home. So I think that from that perspective, they did try to see yes, they saw through me, but I like to think of that as like a lens there. I also, I'm not sure, I have definitely seen a lot of children that uh, struggle with attention and that sort of thing that have a sibling that's chronically ill or, you know, developmentally disabled, so on. I've definitely heard that before. I don't necessarily identify with that, but I don't know if it's a chicken and the egg thing. Mm -hmm. I was always a kid that was very performative. I was in place. I was a cheerleader. I got awesome grades. I was like your all-star kid. So am I like that because I was trying to get attention and that was a way of getting it? Or was I getting that attention and it made me continue to be performative in that way? Right. I don't really know. I can't really say for sure. But what I keep coming back to is like, it's all part of my story. You know, it's all just part of it. And I'm grateful for, you know, there were certainly times that were difficult, but I, I, I'm grateful that I am the way I am. Right. You know, I'm an elected mm-hmm. office now. I'm, I've worked in politics for the last decade and I don't think I'd be doing any of that if it weren't for this part of my story. So, mm-hmm. you know, but I certainly, I certainly can see where people, uh, where, where folks can feel that way. I definitely acknowledge it. And I definitely, um, what really resonated with me was, um, adults asking the child, like, oh, how are you doing? And saying that they're doing fine or saying what I always got was you're so strong. You're such a good sister. And I, I mean, I was 10 years old. I was 12 years old. I didn't know what that meant. Like, right. how do you tell a 12 year old she's strong? She doesn't strong with what? I, I have no idea what that means, but I think that kids internalize that. And so we have to be really careful about how we talk to children about what you are. Mm-hmm. You know, you are this. And it, I grew up thinking I was strong and that's great. But like, what happens mm-hmm. if I wasn't? on a particular day. What does that mean about me? And so I I definitely identify with it. I think it it is a little different with a a child who's adopted and just the differences around every family's story, but I I definitely identify to some extent. And I found it really interesting. 
Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your experience. And I just want to touch on what you just said a, a second ago about the strength and, and, oh, you're so strong, because that is exactly what parents are told all the time, too. Um, you know, it's the exact same thing. And it's the exact same feeling inside of what's the choice? First of all, like, where's my alternative? This is my child. What else am I supposed to do? Yeah. And secondly, I feel like a pile of rubble inside. So don't tell me that I'm strong when I'm crumbling all over the place and can barely, I'm not sleeping. I can't survive. I, my anxiety's through the roof. Like all these things, you know, that you right. internalize when someone says that to you and you're like, you just you're like, what, what do I do with that? Thank you. You know, but yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a hard thing to take in. And obviously people are trying to be complimentary and, and they're admiring. Well, and they don't know what to say. And they don't know what to say. And I understand that. Um, but it's just, it's a difficult thing to receive when, yeah, I get it. <laughs> so I would love to talk with you because you said how, I love how your parents kind of mirrored um, your growing up together since you were just a couple of years apart. Um, we think <laughs> you grew up that way anyhow. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, and I love that they were so open to and ready for, you know, her going to a group home, because I, I know that that is a really big internal battle with so many parents. Um, so many parents, um, you know, well, first of all, there's just not a, a lot of great options uh, in many areas. And so that is a huge challenge. And so finding a place and there being actual availability and usually there's waiting lists for years and all of these things are, there's many, many barriers. But even aside from all of those, just the intrinsic guilt that parents feel that they're, you know, putting their, their kid because they're still a child, you know, they're still our child no matter how old they are putting your, your child, you know, in, in a home or, you know, it mm -hmm. feels it, there's so much, there's so much baggage around that that is mm -hmm. unnecessary, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And so um, I though had the blessing to be taught when my daughter was very young um, over and over by several different people for various reasons, but the import, I was taught the importance of that and the value in that. And you mentioned briefly when you were explaining it, you know, how, how it's so great for her because she has this level of independence and how that's so important that she got to finish high school and then go off to this next chapter of her life, just like you were doing. And so many parents don't see it that way. And so I would love for you to talk about that and um, you know, what, whatever you can from your point of view, obviously you're not your, your mom and I'm not asking you to be, but what that was like for you and seeing you know, how, they, how they valued her and, and how that maybe shaped you. Yeah, and I, I actually, as you're talking about this, I recognize that that is one of the things that probably alleviated some guilt and some traumatic feelings for me is to see that Tina got to live differently but experience a lot of the same things and experience the same joy, the same feeling, the same little taste of freedom when you get to go on your motorized scooter that I got being in a car and driving myself to school. I mean, it's not like I was going anywhere, but you know, you get that little sense of freedom. And so I think, you know, if my parents hadn't done that, I could see how they could feel, how, how some parents could feel guilty putting their kid in a home. But, you know, little shout out to People Inc., which is the, the biggest organization that serves folks with disabilities in my area in Western New York, um, they put her with a group of girls. I mean, it was like, it's like she's dorming. 
you know, it's, they're all same, like functional, generally functional level. They're all friends. They fight about boys. I mean, it's literally, it's like, she's in a college dorm. I mean, it's great. They have sleepovers and movie night. Her social life, her social calendar is more full than yours and mine. I can guarantee it. I love it. Um, So, I mean, I do think that some of that, the way my parents approached that and allowing Tina to have her version of what I was doing alleviated a lot of the guilt. Like I didn't have to feel bad going off to college because I knew Tina was following in that footstep eventually in her own way. Right. And so, because I do think that there is guilt for siblings sometimes about being the neurotypical child, about being the the healthy one and and all of that. And I'm sure that that happens even more so with biological um, siblings, but I, I certainly felt it too. And like I told you when we were first talking, I forget that she was adopted. It's, she's just part of my life, part of my story, part of mm-hmm. who I am. So I forget that she's adopted, but I, I you know, there's definitely differences there. And so I, I would imagine, and I have seen that there can be guilt around that. And there have definitely been times where I was going off to do something where she really couldn't join me and she couldn't do the same thing. I think of like parties in, in high school, mm-hmm. you know, there, there wasn't a huge equivalent to that. And she really couldn't come with me. It wasn't an appropriate place for her to, mm-hmm. to you know, if I was going to the movies with my girlfriends, that was different than like a boy girl party, you know? And so there were times I definitely felt guilt around that, but it helped alleviate it that when she did get to do those things. So I do think it's important. And I, I, I'm very big in my government work. I'm very big on the economic impact that disabled people have on our world. First of all, having a job, having a place to live, having all of those things are important to survival, but are important to getting up in the morning and feeling productive and feeling like a part of society. I think it is extremely important that they have those same opportunities and that we make it accessible for folks with disabilities to be able to be a part of that. And quite frankly, they are a part of the economy. They go out, they earn money, they spend money. They, you know, So they are, they are just as important as any other group of people to our economy. And I think if we start to recognize that, you know, yes, it's important to take care of people with developmental disabilities from a moral perspective, but but from an economic perspective, it's good for all of us. So Mm -hmm. I I just think that continuing to find the accessibility and find the way to offer those opportunities is really important. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I could not agree more. And I mean, just the, the, value of them feeling purpose and meaning in their life. Just, I can't even find good enough words to describe how important that is and how life changing that is for them and and everyone around them. And they deserve it. They deserve it simply because they are human beings on this earth. Yes, Yes. exactly. There's intrinsic value in that and they deserve to wake up and have that purpose, whether it's whatever the thing is right now, her job is um, building boxes and she loves it. She loves stuff that's like repetitive and with her hands and like works like that. And she gets her paycheck and she's saving up to go on a, um, oh, I can't remember, I'll shoot you the name of it, but there's this group that does trips for folks with developmental disabilities. And she's going on one, hopefully to Orlando provided COVID. Right. That's amazing. She's going to try to go to Orlando in December. This is the first time my mom's letting her do it. We're a little that bit, is but, so great. But she's saving her own money to do that. Yes, and so that is and just like everybody else. Exactly. Yes. I love that. That is so beautiful. And I just can't even tell you the difference. So my daughter is younger. She's going to be 20 in like next week. Um, and for me, that's like, 
oh God, now she's an adult adult. You know, <laughs> she's been a, she's been an adult for two years, but like a teenager. So it's not really the same. I, I, I bless that two year period for whoever created this 18 as an adult thing because it really gives parents a buffer. <laughs> to get, get, used, to to get used to the idea yeah so she's about to be a real adult I say now no she's mm-hmm. 20. um and she has been uh going to this day program at at a farm for the last year just right out about a year now and it has been life-changing for her because for the first time she has something that she can really do that is truly purposeful and it, it like she just lights up. She pushes through. If she's having a hard day, it doesn't show at the farm. Like she just oh. wants to finish her her jobs that she's given. She's it's usually four jobs in her hour, feeding a couple of animals, the donkeys and the goats always. Um, but then a couple of other things like right now they're planting seeds for spring and stuff. Um, and the and they vary and it's different all the time. But she will push through like no other place in her life ever (laughs) to, to, to be able to do it and accomplish it because she feels valuable. She feels valued and important and she's severely impaired. She's nonverbal. She's not toilet trained. She, I mean, so people who don't know her will look at her and think that she has no meaning in a, in life that she doesn't understand what's going on. Um, that sort of thing. And, and to see just the complete opposite of that in her in the last year has just been so life-giving for for all of us. And so I appreciate so much that you brought up that topic and that you work for that. Can you tell us more about your work um, in on the city council and, and, you know, what causes you champion for us? Yeah. So I started working in politics. I was working for a state Senator. Um, That was my first job in politics and um, I did some policy work, but he let me focus a lot on developmental disabilities and um, the Office of People with Developmental Disabilities through New York State. That was kind of my casework area. So I did a lot of that. And then I went on to work for um, our now majority leader, Senator Schumer. Um, mm-hmm. I ran his Buffalo office, which was an amazing experience. I mean, you're talking about the highest levels of government as someone who's passionate about that. I mean, it was just really it was really something and, and I feel really blessed to have that time. We, you know, at the federal level, we don't do as much in terms of that. And that job was a little bit more focused on communication, but still it's always been sort of part of my life. And I was the representative for those issues within his office. Um, so that was great. And then I was like, I need to burn burned out. I'm done with elected politics, done. I, I'm going to go work for Delaware North, which is one of the biggest companies in Buffalo and um, do their government affairs. So still government related, but do their, you know, on kind of the other side of the table. Right. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love my job. This is my dream job, dream company. I've wanted to work there since I was a kid. So we made it. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I do love it. It's been a weird year working in hospitality, but that's all right. Um, But then within, oh gosh, I don't know, eight months a seat opened up on my town council, the town where I grew up in and that I grew up in. And I was approached about it. And at first I was like, oh gosh, we can't do this. Who's got You're the like, time? No, but, I'm burnt out. But. Right, yeah. And I have my dream job. Why would but I do also, that? But also I want to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah, and here I am. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it ended up, I, I was filling a vacancy. Now I'm running for a full term now. Um, and I, I absolutely love it. It's really cool. I've worked at the highest level of the government with, with Senator Schumer and, and seeing how that works is so important for your for my growth as a 
a person, a public servant, someone who wants to, to truly serve their community. But I'll tell you, town government is so cool. This is where the rubber meets the road. I bump into a pothole. I make a call. We can get the pothole filled. Oh, like, hallelujah. By the end of the day. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So I really found a lot of fulfillment in that and in being in town government. And so one of my big initiatives was starting our community's first uh, disability committee. That's what they wanted to call okay. it. I have renamed it the Universal Accessibility Committee. Because Love it. Yeah, because it's not just about accessibility for folks in a wheelchair. It's yep. about accessibility for us all. Yep. Um, Everybody's going to get old. Exactly. Our aging population. Um, COVID has brought up a ton of different issues. You know, if you have even a minor hearing issue and now everybody's wearing masks around you, what is that like? What is that like yes. for you? If you have a minor vision issue and you wear glasses and you're constantly, oh, talking, no, you know, constantly. just there's so yes. much that now we're all sort of equalized a little bit among that. And so um, we put together our committee. We've been doing some, some great stuff around um, snow removal. You know, we live in Buffalo. There's a lot of snow and Thank you, because as, as the parent of a child in a wheelchair, I can tell you, I don't know how many parking lots decide to put their big piles of snow, because I'm in Michigan, also very snowy. Their big piles of snow in the handicap spots. Hello, are you kidding yep. me right now? <laughs> yep, and our town was not real clear on whose responsibility that is. Like, we know it's the property owner, but like, once they do it wrong, then what? We didn't right. really have a clear plan on that. So we've been drilling down. That's what we've really spent this winter on is like drilling down on what that plan should be. Awesome. Um, there's a, there's an intersection in our town and I pass it every single morning on the way to my daughter's school, where as you're coming up this main thoroughfare, if you want to turn right onto the side street, it's called Harrison. There are four steps on both sides of the street hmm. in the middle of the sidewalk. Now, you know, that was grandfathered in from like the 1950s. And that's sure. fine, but that is not accessible. We need to do something about that. So we've been working through what we can do. And it, it's, that is one of the hard parts about town government is like, I can't just say, okay, we're going to spend $400,000 and fix these stairs. We got to yeah. figure out what the entire road needs in terms of walkability, in terms of accessibility and all of that. And kind of, you know, we have to do it as a project. And, and everything. Yeah. yeah. But just the fact that we're moving in that direction when those stairs have been there since the 1950s is is huge. Um, and then you have a committee for for right. this. So we can address it. Yes. Yeah. And I see it working both ways. Like I want us to go after projects like that, but I also, as big projects are coming up in the town, you know, I, I want our folks to be on those committees and at the table. I see that as my role now is giving voice to the voiceless and making sure that our folks have a seat at the table right next to me. If I'm at the table, I should be reaching back to bring you with me. Yes. And, and so that's really what I'm trying to create with this committee is, yes, I want, I want us to do work and do our own projects, but I want us to have a say in everything that happens and all the money we're spending. Yeah. Yes. In all exactly. the committees, not yep. that you just have the one. Oh, this is beautiful. I have goosebumps. You're speaking my language. <laughs> love this so much. So I um, would love to hear from you as to what you would say to, to anybody listening about how they can get involved on their super local level. Because like you said, that's where the rubber meets the road. That is where stuff happens. That's how you make change. And so how, how do you recommend 
you know, what would be a first step? What, what would you say to someone who might want to see some sort of committee like this in their local town or something? So go to your town board meeting and ask for it. Town board members, we are always looking, I mean, we don't, nobody knows who we are. <laughs> you know, we're always looking to find the next project, to look for the thing that needs to be done next. So go to your town board and ask for it. That's first of all, I betcha, you know, nine times out of 10, you're going to find a sympathetic ear because most people know someone in their lives that has a disability, whether it's an aging parent or, you know, their girlfriend has a son or whatever, you know, there's almost everybody is touched by this in some way. So you will find the people that have a heart for it. If you don't, then you need to look at the ADA and figure out if your community is compliant. Most communities need to have a forward-facing ADA uh, compliance person who, if there's a sidewalk issue, if there's a street light issue, we had an issue with a utility pole in the middle of a sidewalk, mm. which it was okay because like a wheelchair user could get around it, but a person who's visually impaired, forget it. They're, they're right. going to run right into that thing. Smack dab into so it. you are, every community is supposed to have somebody who is the ADA person. And if ADA community is the American with Disabilities Act, in case yes, somebody thank you. doesn't know. Government person over here using all my acronyms. <laughs> but yes, the American with Disabilities Act um, calls for each community to have somebody like that. And so um, if your community doesn't, then that's something to work towards. And then once you have that person, you know, you guys can team up and, and get going. The thing that I think is, is kind of interesting is folks with uh, family members with disabilities, probably siblings a lot, like we're sort of expected sometimes to become a social worker or a special ed teacher or whatever. I mean, I was told that story growing up, oh, you'd be such a good special ed teacher. I don't think I'd be good at that at all. Hmm. I think I'm really good with my sister, but I don't think that I would be excellent at that. But what I found that I am excellent at is advocating and doing that part of the job. So. So what I would say to people is like, figure out the thing that you're good at and that you want to see change and then go do that. You don't have to be a social worker. You don't have to be a special ed teacher. Like there's just so many other ways that we can help that community and help that population of people um, that we live with that are beyond those things. Mm -hmm. But I think going to a town board meeting and looking at your ADA is the, that's, those are the first two steps. Boom. And there should be a, an ADA person. There should be. And so that is likely a great start. Um, I would imagine this is one thing I don't know. I'd have to look at. I live in a fairly large town, so we have to have our own. In some smaller mm -hmm. towns, it may be that you have to have a county-wide ADA person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you might have to look at a couple different levels of government if you live in a smaller town or city, um, but, but it's there. It's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and someone's responsible for you geographically, yeah. no matter where they're at on the tier level. <laughs> right. Fantastic. There's one other thing that I would love to talk to you about before we wrap up. So um, I'm very curious about this and I haven't really talked with, with any of my other sibling speakers yet about this topic. And so one thing that as a parent um, that is, has always weighed on me um, is, you know, how, how am I doing with my other children who, who aren't the disabled child? And and what do they feel is the expectation for them long-term as their adults and as my husband and I get old, as you described, your parents are aging. And so now, you know, you kind of help with, as a caregiver role. And, um, you know, so what was the expectation on you about, about that, whether it was 
actually verbalized or or not and you just felt that that was the expectation on you um, and how did that shape you and what does that look like for you so um it, it wasn't really something that we talked about in any uh, real way until I was in my 20s. Um, I think it was always sort of understood that I would take care of Tina because that's always been our relationship. I think I told you like my parents used to call me the little lawyer because Tina would act up or do something bad like any normal kid <laughs> and they would scold her, yell at her and in would come Shannon. <laughs> to defend her and you know the little lawyer so you was were always, always advocating for her I was always at age eight I was advocating yes um but so I think it was always somewhat understood for me that I would that would be part of my life I don't think that I really understood the legal and financial responsibilities of it until I was in my 20s and started working a first job and stuff and, and that was a conversation that I had to have with my parents about like what's this gonna look like and so they did, um, and to my parents' credit, I mean, they, they, I think, had a plan in their head. They just were kind of waiting for me to be ready and mature enough to understand that. And so once it was time that, you know, they have her financially sort of set up, we're not mm -hmm. wealthy by any means, but, but, you know, they have some finances set aside for her. Mm -hmm. And then we also went ahead and made me a, a secondary guardian for her so that if God forbid something should happen to them both at the same time, we don't miss a beat. Tina's right. taking care of 100%. Um, that is and so, 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 so important yeah. because people and, don't realize what is going to happen to that disabled adult, even if they're not a child anymore, what is going to happen to them should you suddenly get hit by a bus? Yeah. And we never wanted there to be a question. So yeah. That exists. And then there's even a couple other layers. I have a cousin who's also, you know, she's, she's in the, in the will, I think like she's in the mix of things. So there's a few layers there. So, so I think my advice to parents so is you first need to of all, help with Tina's care in some way. Yes. Okay. Yes. So it's not, so all I wasn't married when I became her guardian. So my husband is not mentioned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but also I just think it's smart to have two families that are involved there. And my cousin you know, it's just another layer of support there so that Tina's always take care for, you know, mm -hmm. God forbid all three of us get hit by a bus, there should be another fail safe there. And so um, I think the important thing for parents to think about is like, get that stuff set up. I mean, I, I think that most parents are probably doing that, but then you have to be really honest with your, your neurotypical mm -hmm. child and just have that communication. It sucks. Nobody wants to talk about when they're gone. Nobody wants to talk about this thing that your child, you know, that your neurotypical child is going to have to deal with for the rest of their life. You don't want to talk about it. I get it. It sucks. Do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Because the anxiety of not knowing and having to deal with that is going to be way, way worse than the long run. You know, it's mm -hmm. an hour of, of talking about something uncomfortable versus a very uncomfortable, terrible situation should a bad thing happen. Um, so that that's what I would just say to parents is like, have a plan. And, and this is an opinion. But I feel that while the neurotypical child should be involved and should have a say, I feel very strongly that the parents should come up with a plan on their own. It is not the, the healthy child's uh, responsibility to come up with that plan. If there needs to be modifications because of that person's life, like God forbid I have a, a developmentally disabled child, that might change the equation. Um, 
you know, so, so there needs to be flexibility there, but I really think that it should be the parents coming up with that plan on their own and then coming to the child, to the, the uh, sibling for support, input, that sort of thing. Such an important point. And coming from you as a sibling, it's, it's just beautiful and pure gold, really. Um, you know, for the parents to have that responsibility because the burden of any sort of level of guilt that that could impose on the sibling just isn't fair. Right. It just isn't fair at all. And so I love that, that you brought that up and that you said that um, parents, basically get your shit together. <laughs> I mean, that's where, that's where we're at, Shannon. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Well, and I think it's, it's hard. You're so focused on that child's emotional well-being and all of, you know, all the things that the special needs child needs. And I think that's, that's sort of the whole point of why you're doing this is like, what is this other child? Like, what do they need? And I think what they need is to have parents and to be allowed, especially when they are kids, they need to be allowed to be a kid. Yeah. That was one thing that my parents did well. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't perfect you know there were definitely trying times but like I went to summer camp I think summer camp is such an important thing for kids that grow up in that kind of a situation if you can afford it and I recognize that everybody can afford it not everybody you know it's a privilege all of that but I just went to like a church camp a lot of options yeah I went to church camp it wasn't like you know know, we had one horse you know it was like that kind of thing but (laughs) what that allowed me to do was be independent and um and, and learn how to tell the story of my sister and my family without the chatter around me. That was my space. Summer camp was my space, my story. I could talk about it. I could not talk about it, whatever I wanted to do. And that really gave me that independence. And look, it's summer camp. It lets, you know, kids being kids. And so I think that allowing um, kids to be kids is, is really important and letting them just do their thing. And then when they're ready and they're mature enough, like my parents did, you bring them into that conversation about what the future is going to look like. But I think that if we allow kids to be kids and we don't parentify them to the point of trauma, then when that time does come, they're ready. I was ready. Like I didn't have any, I don't resent my sister. I don't resent my parents at all because I was allowed for the most part to be a kid. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I, I mean, I don't think there's any more to be said. I think that was, I think that was the most beautiful ending right there. So thank you so very much for your generous time and all your amazing wisdom. And most importantly, thank you for the work that you do in your community and um, for every special needs child and disabled adult out there. Um, thank you for your advocacy and your, and your love yeah. and support for the community. I love it. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's great. And it's, I, uh, I will definitely be a long time listener. I'm so glad that I met you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. If you want to learn more about how to take care of yourself along your parenting journey or how you can better support those special needs parents in your life, you can follow me on social media, Lara Kitts on Facebook and at lara.kits on Instagram. And that is spelled L-A-R-A-K-I-T-T-S. I also have a blog on my website that's worth subscribing to. Check it out at larakits.com. Until next time, take care of yourself.